This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Our uh, text this morning is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had finished instructing, had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go, and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant word this morning, and it is truth. And we come to it, Lord, uh, not sitting in judgment of it, but allowing it to sit in judgment of us. Not forcing our ideas about you on it, but letting it shape our ideas about you and who you are and what you do and what you will do. And so, Father, we pray now that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, by the scriptures, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John was in prison. We knew that. Matthew told us that back in uh, in chapter 4, that uh, John had been imprisoned. And it's possible that he has been imprisoned during most of what we've been studying uh, since that point in 
the Gospel of Matthew, much of Jesus' Galilean ministry, possibly for as long as a year. And while John was in prison, he apparently had time to think. He had time to mull over the events that have happened in his life leading up to his announcement of Jesus as the Christ, his arrest, his imprisonment, and thinking about the things that he was hearing about what Jesus was doing. And John began to be troubled. He began to be a little bit bothered in his heart. The more he thought about things, the more he saw what was happening, the more he realized what was not happening. And it came to the point that, as we read here in verse 2, sent word by his disciples. And he had one question for Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for somebody else? This is John, John the Baptist. This is John who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John who said, The one who comes after me, I, I, his, his sandals I am not worthy to untie. And the same John is saying, Look, are you really the Messiah or should we just keep on waiting? What would drive John to begin to have these doubts? Questions about Jesus and about his ministry. Well, it probably has something to do with John's own discouragement at languishing in prison. In fact, if you'll turn back over to Matthew chapter 3, we'll see that the way John speaks of Jesus indicates that he expects some pretty amazing and big things to be happening Uh, Look at what he says in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, particularly 12. John says of Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Messiah is going to come in, and he is going to clean house, and he is going to judge his enemies. And why is John still in prison? John is thinking. What what am I doing here, languishing, rotting away in this prison, if Jesus has come to bring judgment on his enemies and my enemies? Why is it that I'm allowed to be held in custody? No doubt that's that's what's behind this question. Others have, have, have posited other ideas. Maybe he was only beginning to realize who Jesus was. Maybe he was asking this only for the benefit of his disciples. Well, those really don't seem to... To hold true, we can understand what it is to become discouraged, to begin to rethink what we assumed, what we thought. But you know, this passage arising in answer to John's question is a passage that speaks to us today. Because in this passage, even when we might be tempted to say, Jesus, you know, I followed you, but things aren't going well. In fact, things seem to be getting worse. Where are you? Don't you care? Aren't you going to help me out as one for whom you died, as one who is a brother or sister of yours adopted in, in, in children of our common heavenly father. Well, this passage gives us three reasons to trust in Jesus or for, for many of you to continue to trust in Jesus. Because like John, we sometimes have those kinds of questions. Jesus, what's going on? Why is it like this? What's happening? What's gone wrong? 
And so from John's question, we have three reasons I want to give to you from this text that we should continue to follow Christ regardless of the circumstances. And the first has to do with what the Old Testament says about Jesus. This question comes to Jesus. And how does Jesus answer it? Well, he answers it by referring to the Old Testament. This is, this is what he says. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What he's doing is going back and saying, Go back and tell John the things that are going on. Blind people see. Lame people walk. People with leprosy are cleansed because leprosy was not merely a disease from which to be healed, but a defilement from which to be cleansed. Even the dead are raised up, and the poor, the disenfranchised, the discounted, have the good news of the kingdom preached to them. And these are all references in the scriptures of what the Messiah would do. From passages like Isaiah 35 and passages like Isaiah 61 where these things are stated. So Jesus gives something of an indirect answer. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He says, John, you need to go back, think through the Old Testament. Think through the things that the scriptures say the Messiah would do. And he says to John's disciples, go back and tell John that these things are happening. We trust in Jesus because of what the Old Testament says about him. The various prophecies that are fulfilled in his, in his, in his birth, how many prophecies, and we review them, reflect on them at Christmas, that are fulfilled in Jesus' birth alone. Being born in Bethlehem in Judea, uh, being born in the line of David, all of these prophecies that were fulfilled uh, in Jesus' life, his ministry, things like these that are, are fulfilled, uh, passages like uh, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that speaks so clearly, centuries before the fact, of the circumstances of Jesus' suffering and death and crucifixion. And think of Psalm 22, they cast lots for my clothes. Well, Jesus had nothing to do with that. And these Roman soldiers certainly didn't know the Hebrew Old Testament, the Scriptures, and they didn't say, well, you know, it's prophesied we should cast lots for his clothes, so let's do it. They did it, but it was a fulfillment of what the Scriptures had said would happen. Why do we trust in Jesus? Well, there are all kinds of reasons, and ultimately it's because the Holy Spirit has given us new life and grace and the eyes to see, to believe in him. But we go back and we review, we review the Old Testament, and we look at how that is fulfilled in Jesus' life. We say, surely this man is the Savior of the world, the Messiah who was promised for all who would trust in him. So the first reason is, is what the Old Testament itself says about Jesus and how those things, those prophecies especially, uh, but not exclusively, are fulfilled in Christ. You could go into the whole sacrificial system, all of those types and foreshadows that point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. The law and how all that was fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus just cites a few of the particular messianic prophecies and says to the, John's disciples, go back and tell John, you're seeing those things happen. And that would be enough for John to remind him 
that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. But he says something else interesting. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some translations read, who, doesn't, who do not fall away on account of me. And the word is the word from which our word scandal comes. In other words, to just kind of bring that word in, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. What is he saying? Basically saying, John, look, you've begun well, but don't let your preconceptions of what the Messiah would be and do discourage you as you look at what I am doing and who I am. Jesus is basically saying, John, you need to realize that you've got some misconceptions here about exactly what I would do. And many people did. They expected a, a, a more militaristic kind of Messiah. They expected a, a, a military and political revolt against Rome and, and freeing people like John, prisoners imprisoned unjustly. And so Jesus is saying, blessed is anyone who does not let his own preconceptions of who I am blind him to who, to who I am, to what I'm really doing. And that's true today. People have all kinds of wrong ideas about Jesus that keep them from understanding and believing in and following the true biblical Jesus, the Christ who walked on this earth, the Christ who is coming again, the Christ who calls us to repent, trust in him, and follow him. So Jesus says, blessed are all who are not scandalized, who are not offended by me and who I really am and what I really do, as opposed to their preconceptions. Now, Jesus is dealing perhaps with some disappointment with John, but the reality of who Jesus is and what he would do is so much greater than John's conception and the standard Jewish idea about the Messiah. Far from being a disappointment, they would come to understand that what the Messiah was going to do is far greater, far bigger, far more powerful, far more world-changing than anything they could have imagined. So we trust in Jesus because of what the Old Testament says about him. We also trust in Jesus because of what he says about John. And this is really the meat of the passage here. And really what he says about John says a lot about Jesus too, does it not, as we'll see. So the disciples of John left, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Because they possibly were beginning to change their minds not only about Jesus, but about John. Hey, what about these questions John raises? Well, what about John? Was he, was he wrong? Did he mislead? Were we misled by John? If he's having doubts, maybe we should be having doubts. Not only about Jesus, but about John. Well, Jesus speaks to the crowd about John, and this is what he says about him. He says, you know, think about the person you went out to see. Who did you go out to see? What did you go out to see in the wilderness? Did you go see a reed shaken by the wind? And he's talking here just about a, you know, like a thin, tall grass you might see growing at the edge of a lake. You know, thin, willowy, easily blown about. And so he's basically saying, did you go out and see someone who who is wavering, someone who is uh, uncertain, someone who vacillates in his convictions? And, of course, the implied answer is no. Who, who, who witnessed John's ministry could ever say anything other than this is a man who knows what he believes and he's bold in, in proclaiming it. Far from being a reed blown by the wind, he was like a mighty pillar unmoved by the strongest of gales. Well, he asks another question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Uh, soft is the word here. Some translations render it fine clothing, and that's kind of what it was. But the word is soft, and it actually has overtones of being slightly effeminate. Uh, so Jesus is saying, you know, what did you go out to see? Some, some guy who's uh, sort of foppish, who's just kind of somewhat weak, effeminate, whatever. No, 
Anyone who witnessed John in the rugged and hard life he lived in the wilderness, and certainly the clothes that he wore were anything but soft, camel's hair, uh, a belt of leather, uh, a diet of locusts and honey. And no one would have, you know, pe- people would have said a lot, thought a lot about John, but no one would have ever said he's soft. Obviously a rugged and tough guy living out in the wilderness. Well, again, Jesus asked, verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? And of course, the people are saying, yeah, that I mean, they'd heard about John, this someone who is now proclaiming the kingdom, calling people to repent, as we saw earlier in Matthew. They went out to see reports of a prophet. And they'd heard of a prophet. They went out to see with their own eyes. And, and Jesus says, yes, a prophet and more than a prophet. Now, a prophet was a big deal. They hadn't seen a prophet in some 400 years. And yet here was another one who came in the name of the Lord saying, thus says the Lord. But Jesus says he wasn't just a prophet. He was more than a prophet. How? How could he be more than a prophet? Well, Jesus explains, verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's a quotation from the passage we read in the Old Testament, Malachi 3, 1. You see, John was a prophet, but he was greater than a prophet because he himself was a fulfillment of prophecy. The other prophets in the Old Testament, their their being, their ministry wasn't prophesied in advance, but John's was. Not only was he a prophet, and by the way, if you ever get it, there's a trick question. Who was the last Old Testament prophet? It was John the Baptist. Because John was still, as we'll see, part of the Old Testament economy, the Old Testament setup. But he himself was prophesied as the the one who was to come and to prepare the way for the Lord. And more on that. Well, Jesus goes on to say about him then. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, those those words have given Bible scholars and students uh, fits over the years. What is what is. Jesus getting at when he says that John is is the greatest, and yet a person who's even least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Well, there's two ways of understanding that, and I think they certainly both fit. One has to do with, uh, with, with perception. John foretold Jesus. John prepared the way for Jesus. John pointed people to Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would atone for his people's sins. John knew a lot about Jesus. But you know, a person, even the least in the kingdom, particularly now even, those of you who are here, even you children who are here, know more about Jesus than John the Baptist did. Because you're able to look back and you see what happened. You see how his life would go. You you knew how he would be crucified. You know how he would be crucified and how he would be raised on the third day. John never lived to see that. John could point people to Jesus, he understood Jesus, but he himself was lacking knowledge that even you children have here today. In a sense, you have a better perception of Jesus and who he is and what he did than John the Baptist did. Now, John was a great man. Jesus is the greatest to this point. But even you who are least in the kingdom are greater than John, insofar as your perception and understanding of Jesus. And I think that's a good understanding. But also not just perception, but in terms of privilege. John did not live to be part of the New Testament kingdom of God. John was like Moses, you know, on Mount Pisgah, looking out into the promised land where he himself could not go. 
John was able to see Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, prepare the way for him, and then fade from sight and eventually die, as we'll see. But John never lived to see the cross. He never lived to see the resurrection. He never lived to see the uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit and be, on Pentecost and be one of those who were part of that great day and be part of the earliest days of the New Testament Christian church that we read about in the book of Acts. He did not have that privilege. Now, that's not to say John wasn't saved. Fully expect that John the Baptist will be with us there in heaven. But it is to say that he was the closing out of the Old Testament way of doing things and introduced the New Testament way, the, the age of the Spirit, the New Covenant, but he himself did not live to participate in it. He did not have that privilege. And so those who were least in the kingdom have experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit, that relationship that with God that we have now through our crucified and risen Christ, in a way that John never did. He's in heaven, yes. But he did not live to experience the privilege of the kingdom in the way that you and I have today. Well, he goes on in verse 12 to say something else that's pretty difficult. The days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What does Jesus mean? Again, a lot of interpretation, but basically I think the best way to understand it is to say that the kingdom... Some translations say the kingdom has advanced forcefully. Uh, and that's a possible understanding of, of what's going on there. Or it could be that, as the ESV indicates, it has suffered violence from the days of John's ministry. And that's true. There are those who are beginning to oppose the kingdom. But he goes on to say the violent take it by force. Again, some seem to indicate that indicates forceful action to enter the kingdom aggressively wanting to be in and bring others in. The problem is the word there for violent has a negative uh, a connotation to it, kind of like our word murderer. Uh, it indicates negative violence, harmful violence. So either what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is advancing forcefully as Satan's territory is retaken, uh, but there are those who violently oppose it, or he's simply saying that from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and there are violent men who are out there to attack it and oppose it. But the point is that it's not easy. And he's, he's saying this with an eye toward John's being in prison. John is the victim of those who oppose the kingdom, those who oppose Jesus, those who oppose righteousness. Now, Matthew is, in chapter 14, going to talk about the circumstances of John's arrest and his imprisonment and his death. Uh, but right now, as John's hearing that, he would say, you know, that's right. There are those who are going to oppose the kingdom. That can explain why I'm here in prison, because there are violent people who oppose the kingdom. And he says, for all the prophets, the law prophesied, and the law prophesied till John, if you're willing to accept it. He is, and Jesus is very explicit here, he is the Elijah who was to come. Remember, the Old Testament closes, it ends, that passage we read in chapter 4 of Malachi, with the prophecy that Elijah would come. And Jesus says, if you can accept it, and, and it would be hard, especially before Jesus' death and, and, and resurrection, uh, not because it's doubtful, but because it's difficult, it's difficult for people to get their minds around now that John is the forerunner. He is the Elijah who was to come and prepare the way of the Lord, as Malachi said. Now, that says something very significant about John, doesn't it? But it says something even more significant about Jesus. He is the Elijah who was to come. The Elijah was to come before the day of the Lord. Now, you may have noticed when we read in Malachi, the Lord is in small caps. It's the name Yahweh, Jehovah. This says a lot about John, but it says even more about Jesus. 
Jesus is saying Elijah was the one who was to come and prepare the day, prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the day of the Lord. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the sovereign Lord of the Old Testament that you read about. So Jesus is making a, an unmistakable and strong claim to deity, to being the God of the Old Testament. That's exactly what he's saying here. And that's why he says in verse, in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because that's a thing that there is evidence for, but ultimately is received by faith given by the grace of God. The one to whom God has given the eyes to see the truth, the ears to receive and hear and believe the truth. Now, we, we trust in Jesus because of what, he, what the Old Testament says about him and what Jesus himself says about John, which says in itself a great deal about Jesus. But we also trust in Jesus because third of what the two of them say about us. Look at verses 16 and following. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It says, like children in the marketplace, which is, you know, children out, their parents are out doing business, shopping, whatever, in the marketplace. Their children are just playing among the stalls in the street, whatever, and they're playing a game. It's a game that involves weddings and funerals. But some of the children aren't cooperating. They can't agree on what they want to play, right? You children have ever had that happen where you try to get together and play, and some of you want to play one thing, and some of you don't want to play that. You want to play something else. You want a big fight, and nobody's happy. Or maybe you work it out, and you're all happy. But in this case, they're not happy, at least the ones in verse 17. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. You know, We tried to play the wedding game where we all sing, and we played the flute, and we're all making merry, but you wouldn't dance. Well, okay, let's play the funeral game. We sang a dirge. A dirge is a sad, slow, mournful kind of song. So we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. You wouldn't play along with that either. In other words, there's no making you happy. Well, Jesus uses that as an illustration of the people's reactions to John and to him. Look at verse, verse um, 18. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say as a demon. You know, John lived that austere, uh, ascetic difficult life in the wilderness and people said he's out of his mind he's crazy who in his right mind would live that way who in his right mind would just live in the wilderness and do these kinds of things he doesn't eat he eats very little and when he does eat it's you know crunchy little locusts and what's those and when he you know, eats honey they didn't like the fact that john lived this self-depriving kind of life well jesus says okay we turn around verse 19 the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a glutton he eats too much a drunkard he drinks too much a friend of tax collectors and sinners he hangs out with the wrong kind of people well either way they're unhappy you know john came living this very self-disciplined hard life and they said he's crazy jesus comes and he eats and he drinks and he celebrates with people and he hangs out with sinners and so forth and they say you know he's he, he hangs out with with sinners look at him making a spectacle of himself there's no pleasing them what does this say to us it says we need to be careful, one, about ourselves and how we respond to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures present both sides. John represents the side of repentance, the call to repentance, the threat of the coming judgment of God. Jesus represents here the grace of God, the welcoming God, the God who has sent his Son and calls us to believe in him and enter into his family by faith. Now, that's not to say Jesus doesn't himself speak of judgment. He does. But here, each, each represents one or the other. John represents the judgment. Jesus represents the grace. But there are some people who are going to find fault with either one. 
We need to be careful that's not us. We need to recognize that the threats of God's judgment drive us to his grace. They drive us to Christ. Not to find fault with God because he is a holy God and will judge sin. Not to find fault with Jesus because he offers us the grace of God and forgiveness. But especially we need to be careful in thinking about one another. Because there are people who are very scrupulous in in their conscience and want to obey the Lord. And we need to be careful not to say, I was just a legalist. We make sure that one person's obedience is not another man's legalism. And he answers to the Lord, ultimately, not to you. But on the other hand, we need to be careful that we don't look at those who enjoy their freedom in Christ, who refuse to be bound by man-made rules and traditions, and we say, well, he's just a libertine. He's the antinomianism. That's what the Pharisees did with Jesus. Jesus never broke the law of God. But he violated their laws, and they hated him for it. We need to make sure that we're not condemning people who are violating not the law of God, but our own standards, our own rules, our own quirks, or even our own tradition, if they enjoy the liberty, the freedom that they have in Christ. Well, they're, you know, hanging out with, with sinful people. Well, would that more of us hung out with people who really are caught up in their sin and need the grace of God? Would that more of us really represented or really realized and, and, and felt the thunderings of God's judgment against sin, even our sin. But Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds because in the end, the wisdom of John, the wisdom of Jesus will be seen. And we certainly want that to be seen in our lives as well, recognizing both the law of God represented by John here and the grace of God represented by Jesus. Let the call to repentance lead you to repent and to embrace the grace and the freedom of God that we in Christ Jesus. Three reasons then. To trust in Christ because of what the Old Testament says about him, because of what he himself says about John, which says a lot about Jesus, and because of what Jesus and John together represent. The message of the gospel, both the judgment of God, but the good news of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it tells us and how it reassures us of the truth of who our Savior is. Pray that we would follow him. And, Lord, that we would be strong in our convictions that he is who he said he is, and he has done what the Scriptures tell us he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.